coming away from that, I just wanted to make something that was the complete antithesis to what I'd just done. And Snake Dick was the craziest idea, also the most relevant idea, but an idea that I had written. I knew I would direct, I knew I would produce, I would be answerable to nobody, and I could really create that however I wanted. So I actually initially went and made the short more as a sort of cathartic exercise, more to just sort of say, I need to make this for myself. And then, you know, once I'd done it and I was able to take a step back, I was like, okay, this is great. This is actually really going to help the feature version. And, you know, so far it certainly has. everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. Every once in a while, I get to lean into my punk rock roots and do something a little different on this podcast. On today's show, I'm going to introduce you to David Mamoudier and his new movie called Snake Dick. Yeah, I said Snake Dick on a business podcast. Let me say it one more time. Snake Dick. I can't say it enough. David is the writer and director of this film, and on today's episode, we talk about his creative journey. You don't just wake up one morning and say, oh, I'm going to write and direct a film that means something to me. There's actually a lot of heartache, a lot of lessons learned along the way. And I think it's interesting to talk to a creative professional about his journey and think about the parallels to your journey in marketing, in sales, in procurement, or even in human resources. So if you've ever dreamed about taking a risk and following your dream, or you just like neo-noir short films, you're going to love this conversation with David Mamoudier about Snake Dick. Hey, David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, my goodness. It's my pleasure. You know, today we're going to talk about all kinds of fun things, writing, making movies, creativity, innovation, all the good stuff. But before we get started talking about these big ideas, I want to know a little bit about you. Like, what's your origin story? What's your elevator pitch? How do you describe yourself to people you just met? Very good question. So I am a writer-director, originally from the UK, where I was born and raised. I have an interesting mix. My father was Iranian. My mother is British, but with uh, French-Canadian roots. And I grew up mostly in, in the UK, sort of London, Midlands area, and in Vancouver, Canada for a while. And I, I got involved in the creative industries, you know, fairly young, sort of in my late teens, first working as a trainee AD, which is an assistant director on in sort of TV and film, and then in advertising as a commercial director and in the last few years sort of finally sort of made that jump into narrative filmmaking which is where I've always wanted to end up. Mm. When you use the term filmmaking you're more than just a director right? What do you do for a living? So I sort of really sort of tend to sort of conceptualize a lot of the ideas that I make so I guess I'm a, I'm a writer director at heart but then at the same time I will be hired as a director for hire in fact my, my first feature was as a director for hire which means you know I, I was literally just brought in to interpret somebody else's story and vision. And on the commercial side, that's a very similar setup in that a creative agency or a client shoots stuff for Google and you know Kia, different brands, they will bring me in and they will have a brief. And a lot of the time they will have most of the creative ironed out in terms of what they want that spot to look like. And then I'm just sort of adding the finishing touches and, you know, again, sort of delivering that vision for them as a director and bringing that shoot to life. Well, is there one specific part of this creative journey that you enjoy more than the others? You know, I find myself identifying as a writer, although I do, you know, a multitude of things just to pay my bills. So how do you identify and what do you enjoy doing? I mean, I really enjoy 
the writing process, but it can be obviously very lonely. But what I like about the writing process is just the, the endless possibilities. And I always really sort of come back to my sort of mantra, which is really from Stephen King, where he said that writing is like this excavation process. It's almost comparable to an archaeological dig where you're searching for bones and, you know, you might find bones that look amazing and you think, oh, this is interesting. But then you sort of have to fit it in with the rest of the skeleton that you're assembling. And I sort of find that to be a sort of fascinating analogy because definitely I do sort of tend, having you know done this for a while now, certainly on the writing process side of it, it's sort of like once you find the thread of a story, the rest of it just starts to unravel and, and you do start to find these pieces that fit together. And so in, in many ways, my sort of overall view of the storytelling process is that subconsciously these stories already exist in our minds, almost in completeness. And we just have to sort of find enough pieces where we can sort of start assembling that puzzle and then fill in the gaps. Mm, that's really interesting that the story already exists in our mind, because I think that's true. And sometimes I find when I'm talking to other writers or other creative professionals, they tend to tell the same story over and over again, right? And that's not a dig in any way, but they have a grand thesis, a big idea of the world. And maybe it's expressed in one way with one narrative or in a different way with a different medium, but it's kind of the same thing they're obsessed with. Are you telling the same story over and over again? What do you think about that theory? I guess in some ways, yeah. I mean, I think that sort of on a a subconscious level, we all have recurring themes. And I guess they really sort of, so stories in essence are moral tales. And, uh, you know, it's a story that sort of doesn't take the side of morality in any way is a very rare thing. I think that actually only Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is perhaps the standout story where it doesn't take a moral standpoint, you know, which makes that a very unique piece of work. But I think that definitely, you know, your worldview, your sort of perspective, on, you know, how you see the world that definitely inevitably permeates into your work. And so, yeah, I I think you look at sort of filmmakers. I mean, you look at Martin Scorsese, you look at Christopher Nolan, they make very different films that exist and are, you know, masterpieces in their own right. But if you look at them and you analyze them, there's always a sort of common thread where you can identify the filmmaker within the body of the work. So what's your common thread? I think my common thread is that I think all truth is dictated by fiction. And this is sort of something that I, you know, very early on just stumbled upon. You know, my mind is really sort of fascinated by this idea that we build the world through these stories in our own image. And we are in control of what that image ultimately is. For example, you know, as a kid, I used to love Robert Zemeckis as a filmmaker, and I mean, I still do, but, you know, like growing up and and watching things like Back to the Future and Back to the Future 2 and all these amazing movies. And now we're at a time where the technology we're starting to create, you know, hoverboards, you know, like that thing that Marty McFly was, you know, zipping around on in the movie, within five or 10 years, that's going to exist. And we sort of overlook that because we kind of think to ourselves, okay, well, yeah, it was an idea, of course, at some point the technology was going to move in that direction. But what people don't really understand is that technology isn't found like hiding under a rock. Technology is the fruit, ultimately, of ideas. And, you know, without the ideas and without the conceptualization process, you know, nothing would exist. You know, I mean, you could look around in wherever anyone is right now, if you're in your car, if you're in a room, wherever, every single component that surrounds you began as an idea 
and had to go through this process of fruition. And so what I really like to examine in my work is just sort of the metaphors that built our society are usually very fantastical in their origin. And so, you know, in, in the case of the project that we're talking about right now, you know, Snake Dick, that was really an opportunity to explore the sort of metaphorical manifestation of male fear towards female empowerment. And I tend to sort of gravitate towards any story that allows that to look at reality and look at our current world in a mythical or historical way. Hey, everybody. Chances are you've spent the past few months cooped up with your family, buried under a relentless news cycle, and with work that never seems to switch off. Millions of us worldwide are overworked, exhausted, and trying our hardest, yet not getting the recognition we deserve. It's time for a fix. That's why I wrote my new book, Betting on You, How to Put Yourself First and Finally Take Control of Your Career. It's an essential guide for how to snap out of autopilot and become your own best advocate with candid and new stories and easy-to-adopt steps. I wrote this book for you. I believe in you, and I would be honored if you would pre-order it today. Head on over to laurierudeman.com forward slash books. That's laurierudeman.com forward slash books and pre-order your copy today. Tell us a little bit about your story, the project Snake Dick. What is it? What's it all about? So it's an interesting one from the perspective that it, you know, what we're talking about, this iteration of the project is a short film, but it was a short film that was made with the intention of becoming a feature. And in my industry, you will sometimes make a short that will be popular and, you know, people get feature deals off of short films all the time. And sometimes they go in just intending to make a short and, you know, the audience reaction is great. Somebody will see it, really like it and want to make a feature version. And sometimes it's a very intentional path to an idea that might be high concept and difficult to sort of pitch in the room and, and make people see how you would actually go about making it. So you make the short as a proof of concepts that sort of serves two functions. In this instance, I wanted to make something that wasn't just going to be a teaser, but could also work in its own right. So the story tells the tale of two women on a journey across the Californian wilderness while in possession of a deadly and mysterious weapon, which the title may or may not have something to do with. Um, <laughs> and their car breaks down at a gas station and they encounter two, we'll say very MAGA-centric individuals, you know, that begin sort of catcalling them and, and uh, you know, giving them a lot of unwanted attention. And it sort of escalates from there and becomes this sort of tale of predacious female empowerment, but also has a lot of other sort of allegories just for the state of our country right now. And the end of the film is really sort of where it leaves the door ajar for the sort of longer sort of feature version that I can't really say too much about because, you know, we've been very lucky to have a lot of interest in the short and we're sort of currently speaking to a couple of potential partners on that. But what I can say is that the feature is set against the backdrop of the 2020 election. And so it's a kind of how the election was won slash lost retrospective. So I'm obviously watching the events of this election very closely because it's going to dictate the ending of the <laughs> the future. Yeah. Well, I should tell our lovely listeners out in the audience that we are recording this the day after the election. And so many questions, because I think first and foremost, it's very tricky to write about MAGA supporters, like true Republicans in a way that doesn't seem empty and already done. So what's the dance around that to demonstrate humanity or not to create fully fledged characters and bring something different to that? 
Well, I think in the short, obviously, the time is limited. And it's very much about establishing the concept and establishing, you know, our sort of heroines. But certainly in the feature, I've taken a lot of care and time not to write something that is from a one-sided perspective. Because, you know, we do live in a very divided country and a very divided world right now. And I think that making something that is, I mean, I'm a Democrat, you know, I voted for Biden. I'm, I have no nails left from the election last night. Let's, <laughs> right. let's see. But, you know, things are looking good for him as of right now. But even so, I'm definitely a big believer. And one of the reasons why I'm, I'm so anti-Trump is that he is not a unifier. He is not a man and never has been in business or in life that brings people together. He's a person that actually has, in his own words, this divide and conquer mentality. And so getting back to your question, I really sort of had to do a lot of soul searching and a lot of outlining to see, okay, how can I tell this story, but in a way that it attacks what Trump stands for without attacking those who stand with him. Because I personally believe, I mean, a lot of us are probably disheartened this morning where we see that almost half of the country is behind these ideals that Trump stands for. But in my mind, I don't believe that they are. I actually think that a lot of people are voting for Trump for other reasons. They're not necessarily racist. They're not necessarily misogynistic, but they are definitely disenfranchised. And I feel that with cinema, cinema is such a sort of universal tool and stories are such a universal tool to unify people. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you can still enjoy, you know, the latest Marvel movie, you're probably not going to get into a political argument over that. And so with this set against the backdrop of the election, it doesn't pick a side. The only side it would pick is it picks the side of feminism and what it means to be a feminist in Trump's America and this world moving forward. Well, that's really interesting. So many questions, but I'm curious about what it does mean to be a feminist in Trump's America, because I guess we've had four years where we've seen it play out and we've seen the rise of Karens and we've seen the rise of white feminism and its limitations. And I just think, you know, feminism has never had a greater opportunity to kick ass and take names, but it's also kind of let us down also over the past four years. I don't know. Does any of that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And with Snake Dick, I mean, one of the sort of themes of that is, again, going back to this metaphor, is the extremities that perhaps, you know, women may feel they have to go to in order to be noticed and heard. And a big motivator for me writing this in the first place, I actually wrote the idea initially back in 2016, around the time that Trump was running for election and, and eventually being elected president. And to me, it was a very interesting time because you had the Me Too movement was really taking off. I mean, it had been around for a few years before then, but I think off the back of, you know, Harvey Weinstein and off the back of the Access Hollywood tape, it was sort of a rocket fuel to the Me Too movement because all of a sudden you had this serial misogynistic in Trump who was running for president and eventually being elected president of a country that pioneered women's rights, you know? And I think that irony, you know, really just sort of made women stand up and say, okay, enough. We are clearly not being heard if this is who we are electing to make decisions about our bodies and our futures. And in parallel to that, you had this very strange, you know, opposition from a lot of the male side. And unfortunately, I have to say, you know, a lot of people that identified with Trump or a lot of people who sort of saw some of themselves within him that was this sort of, you know, anti-movement against cancel culture where they were sort of painting men as the victims. And it was just, it was so atypical of everything that women were, you know, campaigning about that we're not being heard. And even when they had the mic, 
men were still in the background saying, well, you know, what about us? You know, we're not all bad and, you know, we can be victims too. And so just the whole sort of bizarreness of that, I think, is what really sort of contributed to this idea and sort of, you know, formulating a microcosm of that sort of matchup in a very sort of ludicrous way. And, you know, from that point onwards, I, I spoke earlier about sort of finding the thread and sort of unraveling the story. That was the moment, you know, where the story was born. And I went off and did some other things in between. I went off and made a feature. We probably talk about that a little bit as well. But it was also that sort of experience of going away and doing something else that brought me back to Snake Dick and in a very sort of defiant frame of mind where I thought, you know, this idea that I thought was a little too crazy and out there for people to understand actually is probably more relevant than ever. And, you know, I want to commit to making it happen. Well, let's talk about that because I'm actually interested that you brought it up. You went away from the script. You went away from this initial endeavor of creating the idea and all kinds of things have happened in the world. You know, not only your career, but we've had George Floyd and we've had COVID right? And so here you are about to re-embark on this journey with the script, with the short film. So what's that like? When you came back to the idea, how had the world changed? Well, the world had definitely evolved. I don't know if I could say that it had changed. It was just that a lot of the issues that were there all along were suddenly rising to the surface. I mean, I guess much like the Me Too movement and how that was emboldened by these other events. And I think that's sort of one of the things that we've really encountered in these last four years is the spotlight has been well and truly shone on a lot of these issues because when you have Again, I, I hate to sort of bring it back to Trump, but it's just, it's a fact that when he speaks, we do listen. And, you know, it's not just us that are listening. It's his base that is listening. And what we might hear from him and we think is abhorrent and we think, oh my God, this guy is crazy. Somebody else listens to that and they almost take it as a free pass that it's okay in today's world to still have those views, whether it's, you know, racism, misogyny, whatever. And so I think it was, was very infused that during the pandemic, people were selfless enough to go out take to the streets and really sort of campaign for what they believed in. But in terms of, you know, how the world sort of changed, it was more a case of sort of my perspective of it had changed. And I, I'd suddenly sort of realized that all of these things that we thought were sort of fringe views and, you know, just existed sort of deep in the shadows were actually all around us. And that was also another sort of big theme for me in sort of writing the feature. But in terms of that sort of process, and probably, you know, for your listeners as well, because I, I know this sort of looks at things from a sort of, you know, career and sort of business perspective. And when you're making those decisions, things to bear in mind. I sort of went away shortly after I had this idea back in 2016. I went away in 2017 and made it feature, which was a very strategic decision because I'd just been hired to write a really amazing project for Roddenberry, who your listeners might know is the creators of Star Trek, great company. And they had a graphic novel called Worth, which I loved. And, you know, they brought me into pitch on it. I won the assignment. So I, I, they hired me as the writer to adapt it into a feature. And we were having the conversation, you know, about attaching me also as the director. But, you know, the thing was, I hadn't done a feature yet. And that's a big thing in my world. I mean, you can usually, you know, if you're making a, a sort of smaller budget movie, it's a little bit easier as a first feature to sort of do a sort of writer-director deal. This was a much larger film, obviously. So their feedback to me was, well, look, we love your commercial work. We're not saying that, you know, we're not interested in talking to you about directing this film, but we really really, it would be more comfortable if you'd gone out there and made a feature for credibility purposes. 
purposes. So anyway, lo behold, right around the time that that deal was happening, I had an opportunity that landed in my lap that felt almost too good to be true. It was a feature that was already funded. They had the script. I wasn't a massive fan of the script, but I thought that there was room there to improve it. And there was some very exciting cast that we were talking about that we could potentially get for it. And me sort of really wanting to be able to direct the script that I was writing for Roddenberry, you know, I took a leap of faith and I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to go off and I'm going to make this feature as a director for hire. And at least it sort of, you know, puts me on that feature map. And I don't regret that decision because of what came out of it. I mean, for example, I met Poppy on that film. She was casting that movie. I got to work with Harvey Keitel, who also doing another project with him, Liam McIntyre. So fantastic people. But the film experience itself was one of the worst professional experiences I've, I've ever had. And it taught me a lot of lessons. I didn't have final cut. You know, I really was literally more like a glorified DP on that film just because of the way it was structured. The, the writer, producer, actress, you know, slash financier had final say on everything. So I, I walked away from that experience really deflated and disheartened, but also knowing in my heart that I shouldn't have made that film. I shouldn't have took the job as a director for hire and especially my first feature. So coming away from that, I just wanted to make something that was the complete antithesis to what I'd just done. And Snake Dick was the craziest idea, also the most relevant idea, but an idea that I had written. I knew I would direct, I knew I would produce, I would be answerable to nobody, and I could really create that however I wanted. So I actually initially went and made the short more as a sort of cathartic exercise, more to just sort of say, I need to make this for myself. And then, you know, once I'd done it and I was able to take a step back, I was like, okay, this is great. This is actually really going to help the feature version. And, you know, so far it certainly has. Well, David, I think there are so many interesting lessons in that for people in the creative space, but also in just boring corporate jobs, right? How many of us have walked into something that has turned out to not be what we've planned? And I think your reaction to that is so interesting because you could have just gone on to the next feature, right? You could have figured out a plan that way, but instead you looked internally and you challenged yourself to do something, I think, a little creative. And it sounds like it's been restorative. Can I use that word? Is that an accurate word for you? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that's the biggest lesson that I, I learned about myself. And look, you know, every filmmaker is different. Every person is different. And the main thing that I really sort of came to appreciate is that even if your heart is 99% in something, that's not enough because you really have to be fully invested physically, mentally, emotionally. And I was in this project, you know, don't get me wrong. I went there, I gave it 100%. I left everything on the mat. And when I came back and I unfortunately had to walk away from the film in post just because I didn't have final cut and I massively disagreed with the decisions that were being made. And I even, you know, I actually tried to take my name off the film, which because of a contractual arrangement, I wasn't allowed to do. In the end, I didn't have the power to do that. So that whole process just really made me understand, you know, where I sort of sit as a filmmaker, that I'm not the kind of person that wants to go out there and, you know, make a living shooting other people's scripts and, you know, being a director for hire. And I think I got a little used to that in the commercial world, because in the commercial world, it is a little bit different. You are ultimately there to give the client what they want. 
you obviously go in there and you fight like hell for your creative integrity. And there's been many occasions where you know I've walked away from commercials where I'm like, oh, well, you know, that wasn't creatively fulfilling at all. But whatever, the client's happy, I'm happy, move on to the next thing. But commercials are such a disposable format. I mean, you ask anybody what their favorite commercial is from last year, they're probably not going to be able to tell you because they don't remember. And you, know, you ask them what their favorite commercial from 10 years ago is and they have no clue. Whereas with movies, I mean, you can have a conversation all day, all week, all month long with somebody about their favorite films. So just for me, that that really sort of crystallized in my mind the importance that any sort of feature film that I make here on out, I will be judged on that as a filmmaker. And I don't really care about the judgment, but just in terms of the judgment of myself, was it creatively something that I resonated with to the extent that, you know, I wanted to put a piece of my soul into it. And with See You Soon, which is the name of the first feature that I made, I walk away from that and it has my blood and my sweat and tears in it, but it's not truly representative of who I am as a filmmaker. And with Snake Dick, that most definitely is. And, you know, that taught me moving forward to never really make that mistake again of taking a job because you feel that you have to in order to land the next job. It's not the way to do things. And I'm I'm glad I learned that lesson early rather than later. Yeah, I love that. Well, as we start to wrap up the conversation, is there anything else you would like our wonderful listeners to know about this awesome short film? Like, tell us where we can find it, how we can watch it. Like, how do we get on the snake dick wagon? (laughs) So we're in a lot of film festivals right now, which is fantastic. We just found out we won the Audience Award at Salem and we won the Audience Award at a really great festival in Spain called Catas, which we're very excited about. So it's playing at various festivals all over the world. And then online, it just got picked up by Alta, which is part of Gunpowder and Sky. That is a streaming platform which is available, I believe, via YouTube. So if you go on to, I think it's watchalta.com, you should be able to see the film there from later this month onwards. And it's also currently right now, I think for the next few weeks, airing on Omeletto, which is another you know great short film platform, also, I think, hosted via YouTube. So if you type Snake Dick into YouTube, you are probably going to find it somewhere in the coming months. I want everybody to type that just into Google and see what they get. And do it at work. Your safe search is on. Yeah. No, no, no. Turn that safe search off and do it at work and see what your IT department has to say. I love that idea. Well, David, it was a real pleasure to hear your story and get to know you. Thanks for being a guest today. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David Mamoudier about his film, Snake Dick. Head on over to laurierudeman.com forward slash punkrockhr-136 to learn more about David, to read about the film, and to see a review in Mashable that was actually very good. It's totally an honor to spend time with you every week and talk about crazy careers, interesting stories, and just get to know people who have a different and fresh take on the world of work. Thank you so much for joining me, and we'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR. Punk Rock HR.